episode 24, Patrick and Cyprian speak with Dr. Steve Garvin of Yale University. The team discuss quantum error correction, entanglement, superposition, and material science. Welcome to Entangled Things, your quantum computing podcast, hosted by Patrick and Cyprian. Morning, Cyprian. How are you doing? Very well, Patrick. Looking forward for another great episode of Entangled Things. And I think you're not going to be disappointed. Today, we're joined by Steve Gervin. Uh, Steve, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm a um, professor of physics and applied physics at Yale University. I'm uh, a theoretical physicist. Uh, I don't have my own lab, but I work extremely closely with um, my experimental colleagues here at Yale, particularly uh, Rob Sholkoff and Michelle Deveray. And uh, the three of us are the primary folks together with our team that are responsible for the development of the main architecture that's used today uh, for constructing quantum computers using superconducting electrical circuits, which we call circuit QED. Very, very cool. So you, as a professor, you're used to correcting errors <laughs> in papers and in, in <laughs> concepts. So uh, I think what we wanted to start off by talking about something that's very important. We've hinted at it on the show in the past. We've talked about it. It's come up. But we haven't really dived into, or divinin, dalvinin, whatever. Uh, Conjugation is not my strong point, I guess. Um, is error correction, and and can you can you just mention or or what you think error correction offers for us as far as the way forward in in quantum? What what's the why why do we need error correction? I guess I'll I'll phrase that question. Sure. So. Um, maybe I'll give a slightly long-winded answer. No problem. Um, uh, in the early days of traditional or what we call classical computing, the hardware was not so reliable uh, and not nearly as reliable as it is today. And um, sometimes the the bits that are stored in memory uh, change. You know. Um, cosmic ray strikes or transistor failures um, cause errors. And also sometimes there are errors in the operations of the logic operations of computers. Most computer scientists today don't study this because the hardware has become so extremely reliable. You can do easily 10 to the 15 operations without making a mistake on a, on a modern computer. Uh, but other um, people still worry about these things, particularly engineers that design cellular telephone networks where the signals are weak and noisy and so forth. So you need... Um, very clever techniques, if there's a burst of static or a bit gets dropped or a bit gets flipped, um, you need to encode the transmission and reception so that you can correct those errors. Right. And the, <clears throat> the 
the it's relatively straightforward. I mean, it's sophisticated mathematics. There, there's a there's a chip in the front end of your uh, cell phone that takes strings of hundreds of thousands of bits and encodes and decodes them very rapidly while you're speaking in real time. Um, but it's it's a relatively straightforward and well understood process after many decades of theoretical research on how to do it. And quantum and quantum error correction is a grand challenge for our field because the present state of the hardware is relatively bad compared to uh, quant- uh, classical hardware. Answers. Pardon? More mistakes than correct answers. Uh, yes. And uh, it's because the hardware is, you know, in its very earliest stages, uh, we're still uh, trying to uh, make it better. And the, the, ironically, the, the power offered by quantum hardware in solving problems and the advantage over classical hardware has to do with the uh, ability to for the quantum system to be an enormous superpositions of many different states at the same time. But ironically, that's also its Achilles heel. That's what makes um, quantum computer exceptionally sensitive to tiny noise and perturbations and errors that creep into the into your system there's another challenge here which is in ordinary classical computing the way you correct errors is you take a look at the bit string and you you do like a parity check or there are many sophisticated things but say a simple parity check uh, you have a long bit string and you add one more bit such that the total number of ones in the string, including the one you added, is even. And then if one of them flips, you at least know there was an error. If two of them flip, you get fooled, of course. So you have to do more something more sophisticated than that. But that's sort of the basic idea. Well, in a quantum uh, register... One of the strange features of quantum mechanics is that when you look at or measure um, a system, the state collapses, it changes in a way which you is invisible to you. You can't tell that it changed. All you know is the answer you got when you made the measurement. Right. So how in the world could you possibly do quantum error correction? I'm going to give you, here's the, in a nutshell, the problem. I'm going to give you an unknown state plucked from the middle of a complicated quantum computation. I, I, I give you this unknown state of the computer. If you were to look at it, it's going to change randomly in a way that's invisible to you. And non-reversible. Right. And your job, if an error develops, please fix it. Well, <laughs> so I guess that's the show. We can't it, do it. <laughs> exactly. It's, it seems completely impossible, but miraculously, um, it is 
has been proven to be possible in principle. And now we're working on doing it in practice. And in my mind, the fact that quantum computing on perfect hardware is possible in principle is amazing and interesting. But the fact that you can do quantum error correction is to me much more amazing because of this fact that when you look at a quantum system to find the errors, it changes. I I think you've helped me understand better the challenge, and now I'm even more intimidated by it. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I think also, right, and I would really like to to hear your opinion about about, uh, this part. What it's also very difficult, it's not only that you... uh, you collapse the state when you measure, right? But according to the to the no cloning theorem, you are not able to copy uh, the state, right, of an arbitrary unknown quantum state. So you are not even, even if you, right, you are not. Let's say, yeah, well, you can't measure, but maybe you can think about, I don't know, doing some kind of copies and then using them in some ways. But that's not possible, right? Exactly. So the simplest code which I teach in my classes to introduce people to the concept of error correction in classical communication is the repetition code. It's not a great code, but it works. You send each bit three times, and then the receiver checks those groups of three. And if one of them is different, you assume, since errors are rare, you hope, that The one that's in the minority is the one that had the error, and you flip it back. But as you just said, there's this very important and deep no-cloning theorem that says you cannot make copies of an unknown quantum state. Of course, if I know the quantum state, there's some recipe that produced it. I can just do that recipe any number of times I want. But if I Think about, here's how to understand no cloning. If I gave you a single quantum bit in an unknown state and you wanted to copy it, you don't know what it is, so you're going to have to make a measurement to see what it is. But unfortunately, (laughs) when you measure it, it changes. And so you only copy the whatever state you had after the measurement, and you don't know for sure if it's the state that was there before the measurement. this may sound, this may be a very simplistic question um, or a stupid question even. Doesn't entanglement offer a way out? If I can entangle the particle, I effectively copy it because now when I read one, I know what the other is. Yes. So that's sort of the answer. And um, by the way, I, I tell my students in classes, you know, there's no such thing as a stupid question, only stupid answers. So I'm the only one at risk here. uh, I'll keep working at it then. Yeah. (laughs) But you can, you can try to prove me wrong. Um, So, yes. So in, so when you have a superposition state in which the, the, the qubit is, uh, has an amplitude or a quantum probability to be in zero and to be in one, It's not, you don't say it's in both at the same time, although that's a handy shortcut we say all the time and it sounds mysterious and spooky, but but strictly speaking, it's not in either state until you measure it. You, in uh, in quantum mechanics, my friend uh, Sasha Karatkov likes to say, in quantum mechanics, you don't 
when you make a measurement and you get a random result, you don't see what you get. You get what you see. The act Ooh. of measuring brings the into existence the state. So, um, so you, but it is possible to take a qubit in an unknown state, let's say with a, some amplitude to be in zero and one, and change it to with uh, two other um, qubits available into zero 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 with some amplitude and one 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 with some amplitude. So it's a super entanglement is just a superposition involving more than one qubit. And you can do that. And that, in fact, is the way around the, the no cloning theorem. It, it, do we know of a practical limit on how many particles you can, you can entrap, you can uh, entangle in this way? Because I've heard you can do multiple entanglement. Now, now my rudimentary understanding of, of how entanglement works, one of the best explanations that made it clear to me was, think of a particle with neutral spin or neutral charge or neutral whatever, and then you create two particles from it, they would have a canceling conservation of momentum, conservation of energy. They would either have canceling spin, one up, one down, or they would have canceling energies, positive and negative, so that you knew what one was based on the other, and even if they were separated by a great distance. But I don't see how that analogy works when you'd start dealing with three particles. Four right. Particles, well, 50 particles. yeah, we actually <laughs> we actually do not yet have a complete understanding of how to classify the different kinds of entanglement that are possible uh, with more than two or three particles. But one example, if you had 50 particles, you could make what's called a GHZ state. You could make Zero 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 fifty times plus one 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 fifty times. That's a particular kind of highly entangled state. But there, when you have fifty particles, there are many more kinds of entanglement, and we're not really yet still figuring that out. Figuring, yeah, it's still an open research wow. topic to to kind of classify all the ways that fifty things could be. Um, Entangled, but in terms, I think your question also involved what can we do in practice. So, in principle, you could entangle any number of particles. In practice, it gets harder and harder. It's like making Schrodinger cats that are bigger and bigger and more and more should be more and more classical, and trying to keep them quantum. And uh, so. People have, um, there are different measures of how big <laughs> and how macroscopic a quantum system is that's entangled. Um, with Schrodinger cats fates of microwave photons, we've made them with more than 100 photons in them. So that's, that's relatively large. Uh, with uh, Two-level qubits, people have entangled, um, I don't know what the latest numbers are, but of order 20 in a, in a GHC-like state of all zeros plus all ones. Um, ultimately, if you build a large quantum computer and you run an algorithm that 
you know, uses up the whole capacity of the computer. You have an enormous entangled state uh, in the middle of the of the computation. Mm. Kinds yeah. of states that um, uh, really haven't been explored before. So that'll be um, an interest. It's an interesting quantum engineering problem to try to engineer such states because you have to in order to run quantum algorithms. Wow. And the the other interesting thing that pops up in some of the discussions that we we we, we have is around variations of of quantum error correcting codes, right? I know, for instance, that I think one of those, if my memory serves well, was proposed by by Peter Shore uh, to use like uh, uh, an entangled state of I think nine qubits. Yes. kind of to create an uh, uh, an error correction. So well, my my answer my my question to to you here is uh it's clear that if you think about hundreds or or thousands let's say of qubits, right? Working with these entangled states is 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 clearly like like quite difficult. Um what would be then the 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 approach like moving forward? Should we try to do error correction on smaller groups of qubits and then Try to somehow use the results between these, let's say, islands of of, of error corrected qubits. Or what, what do you what do you see like the are being the options of, of of moving forward in this space? Yeah, so that's that's an excellent question. Um, uh, there are a number of ways to do this. Some of which require exponentially large amounts of hardware. And we're very interested here in the group at Yale in trying to do things in a hardware-efficient manner. So you're right that one of the first uh, quantum error correction codes that was invented was Peter Shor's 9-qubit Code. It's basically a three-qubit repetition code that flip that corrects bit flip errors, and then you concat. Then you take that logical qubit and you repeat it three times in a code designed to correct the other kind of error, phase flips that happen in quantum bits. So together you have nine qubits, and it's able to correct uh, up to one single single qubit error uh in the in the circuit and uh but right an important point i want to make is that right away the first step you did you tried to encode a logical qubit in some weird non-classical correlation spread out over nine physical qubits well, each of those qubits has their own errors. So right away, you've taken a giant step backwards. The error rate is now nine times bigger than when you started. So your error correction circuit has to be very clever, very fast, and very accurate to um, uh, correct and take away those errors just to recover that factor of nine to get back to where you started. <laughs> that we. We call that, that the break-even point. Is that where the innovations we're hearing about? Because almost every quarter, 
for the last year, we've seen articles of, oh, breakthrough in quantum error correction. And it's like really nuanced. They're always, they're interesting, but they're nuanced. Is that the basic starting point? And what you've described is the challenge of, it's not simply the nine bit solution that, that Shore proposed. That's where we're starting from. And then we're trying to get it to seven qubits and then maybe five and then five state more stable qubits and then four so that we're trying to optimize that is that, well, that the progression um, we're going on no not exactly um so the main thing people are trying to do is find a code find codes that will first just reach break even that they'll um you know um obey the Hippocratic Oath and first do no harm. <laughs> but, uh, and, and, you know, there's a whole literature on um, uh, quantum error correction experiments, and they generally don't advertise the fact that they fail to reach break-even. There have been very few experiments um, which actually get close to or slightly exceed break-even. So, but let me let me emphasize that. Suppose we we have our error correction circuit, which, by the way, is made of qubits and similar objects that we're trying to correct the errors in. What does that mean? It means the error correction circuit also makes mistakes. So, to be able to do error correction robustly, even if the error correction circuit has errors, that's that's roughly the definition of fault tolerance, which is really the ultimate goal. So let's say that uh, someday we get um, what we call error correction gain, where the errors, um, the the um, so at break even, the error correction code keeps the logical information alive for as long as it would have stayed alive in a sing in the best single physical qubit inside the circuit. You want to be, let's say, 10 or 100 or 10 million times better than that <laughs> someday. But let's say it gets to be 10 times better. So your your error correction gain is 10, we call it. Well, that's still not infinitely long-lived. It's just a 10 times better qubit than what you had before than what you had before so what can i do with that well i let's say i use the nine qubit shore code well now i could take nine of those logical qubits and make a shore code of the shore codes i could concatenate the code so now i have nine times nine which is 81 physical qubits but if i gained a factor of 10 before I could gain a factor probably much bigger than 10 now because I'm uh, the errors are getting so rare. Mm. And in fact, you can show that um, as you do this, as you concatenate more and more layers, the number of qubits grows exponentially. It grows by a factor of nine with each layer you add. So that's... Each generation. So, that's dangerous. That gets to be a lot of hardware, you know, very quickly. On the other hand, the error rate falls doubly exponentially. I mean, really, really fast. So maybe you only need a few layers of that. But sometimes people think, oh, quantum error correction makes the information live forever. But no, it just makes it live longer. 
And by this concatenation trick, you can make it live a really long time. But no one's close to having achieved uh, that. Eric. We're still working on getting well beyond break even in the first um, the first layer of the of the error correction code. So I have a theoretical question. Yeah. I think it's a theoretical question. <clears throat> I've I one of the two of the promises of quantum are better materials science and 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 better and worse security at the same time. Sure right. algorithm. Um material science, if we get to the point where we have better high temperature superconductors, does that bode well for the error correction problem? Is it is is if something could work at a higher temperature and still be a superconductor, could that solve some of this problem or is that not where the problem lies? Yeah, interestingly, the answer to that question is no. We still, even if we had a, it might be good to have a superconductor that um, goes superconducting at a higher temperature instead of one Kelvin, you know, if it were 10 Kelvin, that would be better. But you would have to still operate it very close to absolute zero. As long as you stick to um, microwave frequencies. And the reason for that is um, in quantum mechanics, frequency is energy. If you take uh, a microwave signal or a microwave photon with a frequency of 21 gigahertz, which is a little bit above the cell phone frequencies or your microwave oven frequency, the energy of one quantum, of one photon of that signal is about corresponds to the energy available in a thermal system at one Kelvin, one degree above absolute zero. So that means that you have this fantastically cold wall surrounding your, um, your quantum computer and they're glowing red hot as far as your... Uh, qubits are concerned because there's uh, what we call black body radiation. Uh, you know, it's, it's like looking at the sun um, the, uh, in the visible. There's huge numbers of visible photons. At one Kelvin, there's huge numbers of microwave photons in the gigahertz range. So you have to cool down to the noise. It's a noise uh, level thing. Yeah, it's, it's a noise and you have to cool it down to roughly a hundredth of a degree above absolute zero. So does there, there's no benefit to higher temperature superconductors or it would be just convenient? Well, so. there, there could be a benefit in the sense that, so superconductors work, they're, they're metals, they're full of electrons. Normally the electrons kind of travel independently, but in a superconductor at low temperatures, they pair up together, one spin up and one spin down, and they, they all kind of travel, they, they kind of condense into the same macroscopic quantum state and travel together without friction. So the energy, but but at finite temperature, you could break some of these pairs, these so-called Cooper pairs, break them apart, and then you have individual uh, electrons called quasi-particles that travel around and cause friction and dissipation Heat and, so and problems. So if you had a a superconductor that went superconducting at a higher temperature, that means the electrons are bound together more tightly and can withstand the 
the thermal fluctuations at higher temperatures. So it would technically so that would be, be good. Yeah. But, but it's still, a diminishing return. Yeah. Dim- but, diminishing return. Even if it's a little good, it doesn't help us to be at a, at 20 Kelvin as much as it uh, does no, to 10. Right. Yeah. yeah. And okay. you know, people, of course, all the technologies have pros and cons. My friends in atomic physics have to deal with these horrible, uh, uh, lasers and getting them stable. And they think, oh, we have a terrible problem because we have to be near absolute zero. But in fact, you get you know, used to it. <laughs> for for $700,000, you can buy a fridge that you plug in and 24 hours later, it's a hundredth of a degree above Kelvin uh, zero. So that, that's that, not that's so really, bad. That's commodity. I mean, it, with, it for, is a commodity. Yeah. I mean, uh, 10 years ago, that wasn't the case, I assume. Right. I mean, uh, in in the olden days, let's say twenty years ago, people um, had to have these fridges that had you poured liquid helium into them. Yeah, liquid helium has become extremely expensive because of its heavy use in uh, MRI MRIs. imaging and hospitals, MRI. etc. Uh, so now having these closed cycle refrigerators that use helium as a working fluid but they it doesn't boil off um is um is very good so it 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 certainly seems to me that this is a kind of a well not sure if race is the right word but uh word it's it's a race between attempting to build more stable qubits physical qubits yes. and attempting to build error correction uh, uh, approaches, right? So, so yes, so, so exactly. So to make progress, if we have better material science, better, you know, fewer defects uh, in the surfaces of our materials, when you polish them to make them flat, you, <laughs> you put all kinds of stress cracks in them and all kinds of bad things happen. You can do better material science. You can do better physical qubit designs. Uh, so that they will they hold the information longer. That that helps a lot. It uh, it means that you, because you also use these objects in your error correction circuit. So then the error correction circuit itself makes fewer mistakes. So that's one avenue of attack to towards this problem. The other is to think of more clever codes than uh, the sure. Uh, nine qubit code or very popular one right now with people trying to build superconducting uh, uh, circuits is the so-called surface code, which is a big square array of qubits. And uh, these are just, they're wonderful and clever and uh, people haven't got them to reach the break-even point yet, but they're they're potentially very interesting, but they use a lot of hardware, a lot of qubits. So here at Yale, we're we're pursuing um, a different approach, in which uh, we we build what are called microwave resonators. They're literally just empty boxes machined out of aluminum, which is superconducting at low temperature, and we store the quantum information in microwave photons inside these boxes. And we can have superpositions of zero and two and four photons, for example. 
And we create those superpositions using what used to be the qubits, the superconducting qubits, which are now kind of ancilla controller or helper objects that help us manipulate these microwave photons. And there's a huge advantage here because there are many different photon states. You can have 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Uh, so that can replace several physical qubits. But there's another big advantage, which is suppose in the shore code, I have nine physical qubits and there's an error. Well, it turns out there are three kinds of errors, bit phase. flip, phase flip, and both. And it can occur in nine different physical locations. So the, the, the little, what we call Maxwell demon that has to go in there and figure <laughs> out where is the error, it's got to do all kinds of very tricky measurements which don't collapse the logical information, but they do collapse the error state and let you know which qubit had the error. That's very, very hard. Whereas in these microwave resonators, they have basically just one very simple error, which is uh, occasionally uh, there's some um, uh, friction or loss and one of the photons gets eaten up by the walls or leaks out. And you don't have to figure out which of nine places that happened. It's just in this one mode and it's only one kind of error. And so we've developed a number of what we call these bosonic codes, ones that use these microwave photons. And uh, there are several different experiments now and several different encodings which have come close to or slightly exceeded this uh, break-even point, unlike um, in, in the usual qubit code. So... We think this is the, a way forward that will not require huge amounts of hardware to get good error correction, but it's still very early days and you know, nobody has a surefire solution. So it's interesting that, that I hadn't heard about any of that, but that's very interesting because the way forward could be, we're just going to make error breakthroughs in error correction and superconducting or trapped ions or some known and currently marching forward technology will be the way that we do it. But it's also possible that fermions or the approach you just described or some other approach no one's come up with will suddenly appear, be far less prone to error, and rocket ahead. Absolutely. Uh, you know, there are a number of technologies that are looking very good right now. Superconducting qubits, trapped ions, uh, cold atoms, for example, Rydberg atoms. But when I give uh, talks or public lectures or talks to young people, you know, I say, we don't know if we've invented the quantum abacus or maybe the quantum <laughs> transistor, but you know, or maybe quantum we're just calculator. You know, barking up the wrong tree. And one of you young people is going to invent something that will just make everything we're doing obsolete, which would be both disappointing and thrilling. So and wonderful. I, I hope yeah. that, uh, you know, yeah. it's just not obvious we're all making great progress with all these different technologies, but we have a huge distance to go to really uh, imagine um, Where reaching a quantum advantage on economically yeah. and scientifically useful problems. So well, one, one thing that I, I just want to make sure that we don't miss uh, uh, in, in this discussion, because I know where, uh, Patrick, I think we're approaching the... Coming up. 
coming up to the to the end of it is we we do get a lot of questions and there are a lot of discussion on kind of like the differences and comparison between uh, circuit-based quantum computing or let's call it universal quantum computing and adiabatic quantum computing or quantum annealing, right? And then we see that in the space of quantum annealing, you already have many more qubits than advertised with, with the so-called circuit-based ones. So if you could just uh, kind of uh, talk a little bit to our audience about what are the core kind of differences in error correction that, that these, these, these two systems and what helps folks in the quantum annealing space actually get to create many, many more qubits than uh, folks in the circuit-based space? Well, um, okay, yeah, so that's a good question. So there, there are two approaches which are mathematically, you know, equally equivalent, the, the sort of circuit-based where you do logic gates and write an, and write an algorithm, and then this so-called quantum annealing. Um, I would say that the existing quantum annealing um, systems are not very quantum. They're, they're widely believed to be only weakly quantum. It doesn't mean they aren't interesting. Uh, there, there's classical annealing, which can also solve these uh, problems. Possibly they're slightly improved by, by their quantum mechanics. but. Um, no one has really shown yet real advantage on hard instances of, let's say, optimization problems. And, you know, sometimes people think, oh, quantum computers can do almost uh, anything. But there are hard instances of problems that where, where they're also hard for quantum systems. On the other hand, um, uh, we don't there there are people make a lot of money solving these optimization problems every day approximately with some kind of heuristic that you can't prove works but does a pretty good job most of the time and uh, i think i also like to tell young people you know this is an open area for quantum systems to 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 start playing with quantum computers quantum annealers and think about heuristics uh uh, just try stuff, and you may discover some better way to uh, to do all of this. After all, you know the the von Neumann architecture, which is the standard architecture of computers today. Where did that come from? Well, von Neumann and and people were you know programming computers by taking patch cords and wires and plugging them in like this. <laughs> it was a nightmare. And they said, this is horrible. And then they had the idea, well, maybe if we stored the instructions like we do data, uh, you know, we'd be able to overwrite the instructions and crash the computer. We, <laughs> but, you know, but that, that, that working with the, the, the going through the pain, uh, that leads to inventiveness. And I'm sure now that quantum computers are becoming available online for people to play with. And they learn how hard it is to do things and how noisy they are. People are going to figure out clever improvements, just as uh, von Neumann did. Although he was an awfully smart guy, so we may <laughs> it may take thousands of us to uh, do it, but it'll be doable. Well, I I hate to call an end to a great conversation, but I think I've got to. I'll be the bad guy. 
Um, Steve, it was really great talking to you. Um, I learned a lot and I'm sure our audience did. <clears throat> I tend to have to go back and listen to our episodes. I think I'm going to have to listen to this one twice. Okay. Um, but uh, I hope you'll join us again sometime. And I hope you had a good time with us. Thank you very much. Uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Thanks. Bye-bye. See you soon. Thank you. Bye, Cyprian.